0: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, journalists, entrepreneurs about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton Senior Tiger Gao. Today, we continue our coverage of the 2020 U.S. elections and beyond. And uh, joining me over Zoom is Jim VandeHei. He is the co-founder and CEO of Axios and the former executive editor and co-founder of Politico. Thanks so much for for, uh, joining me today, Mr. VandeHei.
1: Great to be here. Uh,
0: It's great that you do this. Uh, I, I do want to quickly mention, I think this episode that we're recording right now is our 100th episode for, for, for Policy Punchlines. Uh, yeah. So uh, it's, it's a great honor to have you on the show. And uh, you're also based in D.C., right? I'm,
1: uh, yeah, I'm in Virginia, right outside of D.C.
0: That, that, that's great. I, I guess uh, we could start with a very big generic question, which is for many who don't know too much about Axios. Would you mind telling us about it? Because its mission is to deliver the clearest, smartest, and most efficient uh, and trustworthy experience for the audiences and advertisers. So I would love to hear a little bit more about your journey founding Axios.
1: Yeah, uh, thank you. I appreciate uh, being on here. The, uh, so Axios was designed uh, by a group of us who had been at Politico, who'd been in journalism for a long time. And basically when you start a company, you're trying to solve a problem. And the problem that we saw was twofold. One, that information delivery at conventional media companies Uh, was just, it wasn't, it wasn't efficient. It wasn't user first. And at the same time, for all of us, for anyone who really cares about life, cares about work, cares about the world, we need to learn a lot more across more topics than ever before. And so how do you solve those uh, twin problems, which are both complex uh, in their own right. And our solution was what we call smart brevity, which is find the smartest people who have subject matter expertise across the topics that matter. So anything from politics to uh, to climate, to uh, autonomous vehicles, to business, to technology, to media, find people with subject matter expertise, and then deliver that content in a, in a reader first, user first, uh, mentality, which means just be a lot more efficient. Tell people what's new, why does it matter, and give them the power to go deeper. Be respectful of their time. Be as efficient uh, with the information and the hierarchy of the information as you can be. We're about four years old. We now also have a show on HBO called Axios on HBO. We're a couple hundred people. Uh, we're read mainly in elite circles, so we're re- like our uh, readership is off the charts among uh, CEOs, tech leaders, political leaders, media leaders. But increasingly, I think because of the election, because of some of the interviews uh, that we've done, a broader audience uh, is aware of us. If you're not aware of us, you should obviously uh, check it out. I do think that you, if you care about big topics, care about uh, learning from people who really are, I think, the smartest people I've met in my life, um, then I think it's this place would be for you.
0: Yeah, I uh, started scr- subscribing to Axios many years ago because I was interested in tech and the, the, some of the tech newsletters on, on that area has has been great in informing me of what is going on. But I guess one trend that you talked about, which is a lot of people are noticing today is this shift towards more shorter, more bite-sized, uh, succinct media forms. And you're certainly on the forefront of, of leading this. Uh, but I guess many people might say, how do you get the full picture by, by that? What if uh, we need more long-form content to to really get people think about deeper in a more nuanced way and go beyond a certain bumper sticker level things to to get to the to the nuances. I don't think there's
1: any uh, there's nowhere in our manifesto or in our shop where we would say like uh, short equals shallow. I think it's the opposite. I think for too long media has equated heft with the number of words and just because something long doesn't mean that it's uh, that it's useful doesn't mean uh, that it's respectful of your time and so the idea is uh, how can I be whether it's 400 words or a thousand words making sure that I'm as efficient with your time as humanly possible. I'm telling you what matters and I'm arming you with the facts and figures so that you can have sort of a broader uh, uh, thinking uh, a broader sort of mindset uh, for what's unfolding before you. I do think there's still a big place for long-form journalism and I think there's a lot of it that's being done uh, that is quite good The way we look at it is, if you think on a spectrum of of information, there's sort of like short, efficient on one end, and and I would say essential, and then on the other end is deep reporting worthy of your time. Most of the media exists in the middle. I hate the middle. I hope the middle goes away, I hope the middle dies, to be honest, not in a a way that is catastrophic for jobs. I hope we evolve it into figuring out what's actually useful for the reader, because information nirvana? will be when you perfect long form journalism and you get the efficiency part right, then all of us shift from wasting way too much time either on trivial content or content that doesn't live up to to, to the number of words that are being presented. And we move to the next phase, which will be how do all of us create, uh, essentially I, I always refer to it as like a bionic mind. There's more good information out there than ever before. It's just harder to find it. And so once we get to the point where you know what to read, and everything that you read is actually worthy of your time, then suddenly, I think you're going to see more and more people get smarter at a time where it requires a lot more intelligence to make complex decisions, because technology is crashing into business is crashing uh, into politics. Only then will we have fully utilized the power of information that's out there that right now is very much a a kind of a hot mess.
0: Would you mind telling us a little bit more about the the business or the sector of political media, because uh, yesterday, so we're recording this on November 20th, yesterday on the 19th, it was announced that Buzzfeed is uh, merging or acquiring HuffPost in an all stock deal. And I, it's, it's a kind of a merger out of necessity because people have been saying that a lot of those independent uh, media or, or, new independent media forms are having a really hard time even before COVID because of advertisers and Axios was really founded to address some of those disconnect between the advertisers and business model.
1: Yeah, uh, and this requires a little bit, uh, probably of depth on the, on, the, on the business model side, but I think you described the Buzzfeed and Huffington Post merger correctly. The um, uh, for us, uh, this is our second company. We started Politico uh, maybe 12 years ago or something like that. And we started Axios uh, four years ago. Uh, and I don't say this with some arrogance, but they're two, they're two of the maybe three or four successful media companies created in the last 15 years that are about content, right? And so why are those two successful? Because the, the, the area that we aim at uh, is like people who need information on a daily basis usually to do their job or usually to further their career. That's essentially why people are mass consumers of sort of like meaty uh, content. That space is kind of an attractive space. There's a, there's a big market. Like people, uh, as we just explained, if, if I am a, a worker, regardless of my, whether I work at Morgan Stanley or I work at Google, I need to know a lot more across more topics. So if I can serve you, you there's a there's a easy for me to sort of habituate to you to to consume our content. Our advertiser is a little is different than the BuzzFeed advertiser. You know, I'll, I'll explain this. So a BuzzFeed advertiser. Let's take Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola might advertise with BuzzFeed because they have mass reach and they want to sell you a can of Coke or Diet Coke or whatever hell water bottle brand they have. Um and but Coca-Cola would advertise with us or when we are at Politico because they care about how smart people think about their brand. They're not trying to sell them a can of soda because we're not offering you mass reach. We're offering you uh, entrance into the most important, most motivated, sort of high performing people across the country. And so it's just a different way that it's called uh, corporate social responsibility or image advertising. That advertising actually is a boom market right now. Because it used to be you did that, to be honest, you did the type of advertising because you didn't want to get regulated or you didn't want to get hammered uh, in the media. You wanted people to think better about your brand. What's happened over the last couple of years is that if you're a CEO, now that type of advertising you need for recruitment and retention because your generation is coming into a workforce uh, that I think is quite cool, very diverse, very demanding about purpose, I don't find the purpose part to be soft. I find it to be awesome that if you can get people to believe that what you're doing is bigger than themselves, you can get higher productivity than ever before. And for the companies that haven't discovered this, they soon will. And so that type of advertising is seen as being able to attract and keep people because people don't just want to make money. That's what's different between your generation and certainly my father's generation and, and probably my generation at work isn't just about a paycheck and family support, it's a emerging it's of all the aspects of yourself, and you have expectations of an employer. And so uh, we could spend uh, weeks on a podcast just talking about that one topic, because I think it's the most fundamental shift that's taking place in business today. And if you don't understand it, you're not going to be able to create a, a successful, scalable and durable company.
0: Well, Policy Punchline is not a business-specific focused uh, uh, podcast, but I guess one couple of times you've mentioned this, that that really... interests me is that your readership is a smaller one, but high quality one that these seems to be the, the elites, right? Uh, and you also mentioned that in part of your mission statement, which is that you cover things clinically, not ideologically, there's no editorial page, there's no partisan opinion and you believe in truth and facts exist and must be highlighted, repeated, defended and cherished in our journalism. But it seems like a lot of your readers are, are higher educated and I presume possibly more liberal leaning than, than conservative leaning and and how do you make sure that that you channel facts to them that that are acceptable to them that seem to be uh, do, do you have any kind of editorializing bias do do you, do you feel that it's it's a slightly more liberal organization than the otherwise is
1: i don't think so i think listen i do think like most journalists uh, come from a, a liberal or center left uh, background. I think our newsroom is probably a little less that than your average one. When I say clinical, I'm talking about I don't want people who are in it for the ideological war, like we're trying to arm you with facts and figures based on the expertise of our reporters, uh, based on the expertise of being in a space marinating it and thinking about it and studying it for 10, 15, 20 years years and it doesn't mean everything we get is right or that you can squint and see bias and I'm sure you can uh, all the time but uh, you put your finger on the thing that I worry the most about is that that I think we do a wonderful job of catering to an elite audience that's not our goal our, that was definitely that was act one uh, but if that's all we achieve I wouldn't consider myself a success I would consider ourselves a success if we now take that Uh, expertise, uh, I think that respect among the lead audience, and now radiate it out to other people who might not necessarily uh, live in DC or work at a big company or need information at this very second to do their job, but get it to more people so that we can be part of the winning team in the war on truth. Uh, and I really believe this. I believe that 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 truth is, is at risk right now. It is possible that we decouple and we end up with uh, basically two worldviews, two parallel universes in this country. And there's a lot of evidence that that might be where we're headed. That scares the shit out of me. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about well how do we help win that war and so in the next couple of years you'll see from us a big expansion out of elite circles into cities we're we're about to launch into to local you'll see us into new mediums whether it's it's podcasts and additional shows beyond the HBO show largely because i think what we do is really healthy for the human mind i think it's great content i think it's it's delivered in a way that uh, you should find appealing and so that that is what animates us and i think it's why we punch above our weight because everybody who signs up for our company it's just a happy company like people really believe in what we're doing like what I say like anyone who knows me would say yeah that's what Jim obsesses about it's not bullshit we're not selling bullshit like what we're trying to do is get you to realize that that uh, often there are verifiable facts some of them could be inconvenient to your worldview I don't care I want you to operate from that set of facts so that you ultimately can make a better decision as a citizen or as a husband or wife or friend uh, uh, or as a a co-worker or a leader. And ultimately, that is important work, I think.
0: Would you mind telling us a little bit more about how you choose or or decide on some, whether something is a fact or the truth? Because we often hear both sides of facts. Both sides seem to be able to find a convenient set of facts that support whatever argument they do. I mean, maybe on a hard science topic like climate change, this is kind of uh, absurd, but on a policy intervention, so for example, on Trump's 2017 tax cut, the effect of which uh, the Republicans will say, oh, this actually expanded the tax base. That's also a fact. You pay more taxes as a rich person in certain areas. That's a fact. But then The liberals would say we have a better set of facts, which is that this exacerbated inequality uh, and you didn't solve some of the fundamental issues that are present. So both sides seems to be presenting facts. One set seems to be more superior or better quality than the other. How do you distinguish these situations? It's described as a very traditional debate, and it is tethered to
1: some fact. It is not... It is not purposeful manipulation of facts to distort and to propagandize. So those are, that is very different what you just described. And so where I say we work from fact, like I say we're not ideological, but to climate, I'm sorry, like we as a publication don't debate that the Earth is getting warmer. Uh, that 20 of the 21 warmest years in the history of this planet have happened in the last 21 years. So they, uh, so we, what we do debate is there are real trade-offs. There are real consequences if everyone in America stopped polluting hold it all together, like stop using lights, stop farming, stop doing anything that causes pollution, you still really wouldn't be able to affect global warming, right? Unless you get China and India and other big populations uh, to join in. And so like there are trade-offs, or like uh, even when you think about the tax care the, the tax debate, you cannot dispute that incomes for people for about 90% of America going back to 1980 stagnated and that the wealthy got wealthier. That is a verifiable fact. That doesn't mean that you have to throw out capitalism. It does mean that you can't just put your head up your ass and say say that that does not exist and that there are not problems that flow from it, that populism does not take root in resentment. And those are things that you can look at through history and say, okay, these things happen. I'm sorry, you can't look at the social media platforms and say they've been wholly unregulated for 15 years. And at the same time, there's been a massive increase in the number of people who don't believe in truth and who who instantly believe Propaganda. That doesn't mean I'm saying you have to break up Google or you have to break up Facebook. What we are saying is we're going to cover the hell out of it and we're going to show you the evidence of what's happening to the human mind because somebody's going to have to make a decision, or we're all going to be dumber, quicker, and we're going to make bad decisions, and then China ultimately will eat our lunch. Like (laughs) will happen if we don't if we don't operate from that. So like yes, there's there's always going to be. Uh, there's gonna be things and arguments that people can make on, on policy issues. I think that is fine. What is not fine is as we're doing this podcast for a group of lawyers to get out there and say that there's mass voter fraud when in this election, even Republican officials who've looked at the results say that is not true. And in the history of modern voting that you rarely find the top of, uh, type of fraud that they're saying. That doesn't mean that it couldn't happen. But you can't just state it as fact when, in fact, it's not fact, because then what happens because of social media or in part because of social media is, as we speak, most Republicans now think that the election results were fraudulent. Well, if you think the election results are fraudulent and that goes to the core of a democracy, that's where I'm saying you're screwed, folks, if you don't figure this out. And by the way, it's going to be on you, buddy, you, the podcast (laughs) and your friends to help solve this. These are, these are the things that are going to be dumped on your plate as you get out into the workforce. These are, heady, these are heady existential things. They're not trivial anymore. This isn't a debate about high taxes and low taxes. Nice debate to have. Not going to make a damn bit of difference about whether or not we are a thriving democracy with a healthy form of capitalism that is a global leader five to 10 years from now.
0: These other big things will. There's so much to unpack from what you just said, but I think maybe we can try to piece together some big trends. One is social media, as you, as you mentioned. We kind of really got, got a taste of the, the full effect on politics of social media back in 2016. And then over the past four years, it seems that little progress has been made regarding coming up with a consistent policy to deal with misinformation or improving the standards for political ads and such and so on. So that seems to be a rising trend. Another trend that seems to be that people consume everything, all the facts and opinions that only reinforce their previous uh, opinions and views. And you previously said about how this concerns you as a big problem. Uh, the two are certainly interconnected in some way. Do you see a way out? You, you mentioned this is my generation's responsibility, but I do want to uh, hear your words of wisdom, I guess, on, on this matter. I'm
1: not totally trying to pass the buck to
0: you.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, listen, like, number one, you can't I will say in Facebook's defense, in Twitter's defense, and somewhat in YouTube's defense, I think they have been, uh, they've done a better job of self-regulating this time than they did in 2016. But that's all they're doing. They're self-regulating. There are no regulations about what happens on these platforms, basically. Anything is self-imposed. And so what I would say, and which we do say, these are, you know, like I, the leaders of these companies are avid readers of ours. We've interviewed many of these people uh, for our publication and for our shows. We talk about it all the time. What I would say uh, to use what I what we've said to them, like, I'm sorry if, if 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 you're sitting here and you're watching an explosion of consumption and an explosion of disseminated dissemination of information on your platforms, at a time where you're seeing trust decrease rapidly, and the spread of misinformation rising uh, equally rapidly, we got a problem. We got a huge societal problem. And that probably does require some kind of government intervention. Uh, In the short term, what you can do is like all of us can be more responsible consumers of content, disseminators of content. What I keep telling people, stop sharing shit on social media, especially if you don't read it. It is a crime, it should be almost a crime to be able to share stuff you haven't read just because it did something to your your stupid brain or, or some kind of emotional response. It's bad, bad, bad. So, but these companies themselves, we as a nation have to have a vigorous debate. We have to probably set some rules of the road. Maybe you do have to treat these platforms like you treat a media company, which means you're responsible for anything that happens on your platform. Just like I am responsible, legally liable for anything that happens on the Axios platform. That is one potential change. Maybe you regulate the algorithm. Why are these companies so successful? It's because the algorithm is smarter than you are, smarter than I am. It knows what you want before you know you want it. And it creates this addictive cycle. And that addictive cycle often leads to for a lot of people who might have bad inclinations of the type of content they wanna consume leads them into a rabbit hole of sort of mind destruction and that's not good. And so what I would hope would happen is that we think about, okay, we have these technologies They do a lot of good. I love the fact that I can connect with my family on Facebook. Uh, I'm not a massive fan of of Twitter, but I'd like that I can disseminate our content uh, through it. I like that I can Google how to fix my crappy golf game on, on YouTube. Those are all very healthy productive things, but there's a lot of destruction taking place. So let's figure out how do we end that and end it fairly quickly. And, and, and it probably does require a fair amount of regulation uh, to get it right. And then it requires some self-regulation by companies and self-regulation uh, by us. But my my point is you can't, if we just keep doing what we're doing and just let let basically the status quo persist, it's so dangerous. Like uh, every sign I'm seeing, is that people who are really smart, really educated, are not believing uh, even anything that approximates truth. Like it used to be five years ago, I'd be like, ah, the people who are sharing stuff and, and getting into conspiracies. I'd be like, ah, they, they're not, they're not like the, they're not, uh, they're not They're the fringe. <laughs> deeply as average people, they're the fringe. And now it's like some of the smartest people in my life, like really highly educated Republicans who, don't believe truth. Who think everything that comes from the mainstream media is false, and that's just that it, it is a societal cancer that is spreading, and at some point becomes terminal. and I and I know my wife tells me I've got to quit giving this rap because she says I'm one of the most. Uh, uh, downbeat uh, people when I talk about this, but I'm not I'm, I'm fundamentally long-term optimistic, but I'm short-term realistic. I'm clinical about it. Like, I don't think there's anything I'm saying that you can say, no jam, you're exaggerating. Where are you getting this shit from? You'd be like, oh God, like he's kind of right and we should probably fix this
0: all our guests come on our show and they would go on in an hour basically talking about the urgent issues in the world. And they would say, oh, I'm a long-term optimist. I'm an inherent optimist. And I I sometimes always grow skeptical of of how optimistic you could be when when so many things are are, are happening. Uh, People are
1: long-term optimists because we've gone through a lot as a nation that seemed unfixable and seemed uh, existential that we've somehow emerged from it. Like I can't give you a clear portrait of how we emerge from this. I can give you, I can give you much clearer portrait how this gets much darker and gets much worse over the next five years, and I can that it gets better. But I assume that that markets correct, that we as a people correct, and that we're going to figure out how to deal with these technologies, how we're going to turn them into assets instead of uh, sometimes liabilities. And, uh, and that we will, uh, that we'll, that will persevere. Uh, I, I just assume that because we have in the past as a species, we evolve, that we'll do it. M- maybe we won't. And maybe then I should take your
0: advice and be a long-term pessimist or we really
1: <laughs> BSing about my long-term optimism.
0: <laughs> exactly. So, so maybe this is less, uh, you brainwashing me into an optimist. I'll try to brainwash you into a, a pessimist. But, but I guess one going back to one quick point uh, that, that you made. we talked about, the, the mainstream media, uh, I guess, we also talk about social media. Do you think the rise of social media and how people sometimes uh, seek out fringe news sources and the, the distrust of a mainstream news source, traditional legacy media news sources, is because uh, the, the institutions and, and the media platforms that we know for decades for our lives are somewhat fail, failing at appealing to the people we're delivering even quote-unquote truth in an unbiased way. So, for example, a lot of people cite from, you know, back in COVID-19 first happened. Uh, Trump didn't do well. CDC didn't do well. Uh, de Blasio on the, on the or, or many Democrats officials didn't really get this thing either. Uh, Washington Post didn't immediately come out and, and pre- provide the most accurate information. Some people go back and say, look, the, the most author- authority uh, voices the traditional in our public discourse have failed to inform us of some of the most accurate information so we have to resort to some scientist group in seattle on twitter who first broke this story and started telling people to wear masks and that's good but on the other hand you immediately have people who go to QAnon and, and say this whole thing is a hoax so it seems that social media platform had, had the power to do both do both good and bad, but a lot of times it's also because traditional legacy medias are failing. Do, do you think that's a problem or? I do think it's a problem. Listen, like
1: we're in a unique circumstance because of Donald Trump. And I don't say this is a partisan statement, but I think it's again, fact <laughs> the fact in that he just says more things that are lies than any other politician that we've seen before, and was very slow to act in the early days of the coronavirus by his own admission. Like those Woodward tapes tell you everything you need to know. Like Donald Trump's not dumb. Like he knew exactly that this virus was going to be worse than he was letting on. He understood the efficacy of masks, and yet he discouraged the use of those. And there's no doubt that that contributed in some, probably not meaningful, but at least marginal way in, in the spread of the, of the virus, right? Or maybe even a more meaningful uh, way. And so like that is a problem. there is, there has been this long-term trend of anybody who's right of center away from mainstream media. And I think mainstream media has made it worse. I do think that there's great journalism. Uh, I used to work at the Washington Post, used to work at the Wall Street Journal, I have lots of friends at the New York Times, a lot of amazing work being done. I'm kind of horrified by the behavior of a lot of reporters on Twitter. I'm horrified by uh, the behavior of a lot of reporters on cable TV, where they make it very clear uh, that they're uh democrats and they make it very clear how disdainful they are not just of trump and his lies but i think for your average republican they feel and i understand this that, that the media is disdainful of them and uh and that resentment then leads them to seek information elsewhere especially soothing information that reinforces their pre-existing views and so I think I've said it before I'll say it forever I think Twitter uh, did a uh, did a massive disservice and really helped destroy the credibility of mainstream media because it unleashed uh, the the opinions and the views of of reporters in a way I had never seen pre-Twitter. Twitter didn't set out to do that it just happens to be the response that reporters had to it and so uh, yes, I think, there, I think there's a lot of self-reflection that we in the media have to do. I wrote a piece this morning about it. Let's be honest. Most of us, most of our friends, not me, I went to a, a University of Wisconsin Oshkosh in a small town in Wisconsin. I'm not from uh, Ivy League institution. <laughs> where people are. Most journalists grew up in big cities, went to an Ivy League institution, live in Brooklyn, live in D.C., have a certain worldview amplified by the people around them. Yes, They don't understand half of the country. Like I spent most of my summer uh, in rural Maine in Trump country, and I I didn't think Trump would win the election, but I was 100% certain he was going to way overperform uh, outside of the big cities because yes. where you went, you could see it and feel it. And it wasn't just racism and it wasn't just ignorance. It was people who were really tormented, who don't like Donald Trump as a person, but think that we're all full of shit and think that all politicians are corrupt and they liked his policies better than they liked the Biden policies and they didn't want anyone to know about it because for in some communities there was a social stigma attached to it. That social stigma in part is a result of the sort of the condescending view I think that media sometimes has towards Trump voters who by the way make up half of this country and we've got to wake up to that. We've got to understand that if we don't understand those people and we don't, the thing I always talk to our staff about is There's a group of people on both sides who are not persuadable, like they're just never going to believe anything that we write. But there are some, and we should go out of our way, out of our way to to try to win over the persuadables, to get the people who are still gettable uh, to believe in truth, to believe in media, to believe in understanding uh, holistically kind of the views of different people. Uh, Like That's who we have to go after. If we don't and we decouple, ain't going to be pretty.
0: So speaking of this, I guess, small sets of liberal bubbles within uh, media organizations in Washington, D.C. or in New York City, uh, do you think media companies have really wasted four years uh, scrutinizing over Trump and, and the intellectual opportunity cost of what this time could have otherwise been spent on to, to discuss real changes was was enormous? I mean, this is an opinion brought up by other, some, some other people I've been list, listening and reading about because it seems that people on the left and especially college educated those journalists have a hyper rational uh, rationalist framework into analyzing Trump and they therefore cannot understand why Trump is behaving the way he is behaving or they simply think it's uh, so condemnable and deplorable and, and, they, and they cannot get over that fact so they so they spend so much time on it and, and so we, we end up just covering Trump all the time 24-7. It gives him the media attention that he needs and it does not seem to really convince anybody on his base any more effectively and it reinforces the division and polarization on both sides. One side thinks Trump is full of shit, the other side thinks, what do, you, what do you mean? He is communicating to the base in such an effective way.
1: I don't disagree with the premise of what you just sort of laid out and I'll <laughs> probably not the most satisfying answer. It's complicated, right? Like on the one hand, Yes, I agree with you, and I, I and hopefully we've done a, at least an okay job at Axios of this. Of like, don't get, don't spend all of your time marinating in Trump when there's all these other important things, big advances in autonomous and uh, mobility uh, technology, uh, big signs of, of of climate change that are worth like really digging into to figure out uh, what 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 can be done, what should be done. Uh, you know, real progress by the Chinese and getting their tentacles into to new groups uh, of allies that could come at our expense. Those things don't end up getting sufficient coverage because of the Trump obsession. I'm sympathetic to reporters. We've interviewed Trump three or four times, spent time with him off the record. Um, it's hard because like you're a journalist and you've spent your entire life and it's all about like, yes, politicians would spin but they never would just like lie and like lie a lot. And you're like, you can't lie, you can't lie, you can't lie. And so you're, and then also the like politicians don't like media, but they say, you're the enemy, you're the enemy, you're the enemy. And you, you go around and people are heckling you as the enemy now. And so it becomes visceral. And so you see that for reporters when they're on TV, how visceral uh, it's become, how personal uh, it's become. And I'm very, uh, I'm very sympathetic uh, to that. Uh, what I wish would have been done and what I hope will be done would be, yes, like this is extraordinary and we've pointed it out, like there's nobody, like we know Trump doesn't tell the truth and we know that there's a lot of people who who who, who sort of follow what he says and then will believe in alternative reality, but I do wish there had been better proportion, like why didn't we spend more time, and I am we like pretty elastic, the media, like It's clear the Hispanic population in this country is far more complex than anyone thought. Turnout was higher than we thought. Many In many pockets, voted much higher for Trump than people assumed. Uh, I think there's a a certain amount of resentment inside the Hispanic community towards the Democratic Party. I think there should have been a little more coverage uh, of that. Uh, There was this assumption that suburban women had fled the Republican Party. Turns out just one truth didn't happen. Assumption <laughs> exactly. that, that even House Republicans thought they were going to lose seats. They won seats. Uh, state legislatures, same number today as 10 years ago, are controlled fully by Republicans. So they now control the redistricting process. Total miscalculation by the media and the political uh, uh, military industrial complex about what would happen there. <laughs> just a lot. And like, I'm again, like this stuff. It is. And that's what's hard about all of it. It is complex. It's not. I wish there were just an easy solution. That's why I was just given a speech somewhere and someone asked, what can I do? And that's where I sort of developed this rant of like, you know what, you take ownership of it. Like, screw it, we're always blaming institutions. Why don't you personally take some ownership? You choose what you read. You do, you make a choice. You choose what you share. You choose choose how much of your mind share you allocate towards politics. And I'm not saying it's you, the individual's fault, but there are small things that each and every one of us can do to try to at least hide ourselves from some of the nonsense, but also arm ourselves to be uh, warriors against the nonsense.
0: I, I think that's just extremely. Uh, uh, idealistic and utopian, don't you think so, so, so Mister, Mister? I, I give you an example. So I go to Princeton. I'm the old guy. I'm the idealist, utopia <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. guy. It's supposed to be you.
0: So, so if you look at the Princeton kids, sometimes I look at the Princeton kids, and and I feel tremendous respect for my peers. But sometimes I go, this is like this. If this is the future, then then we're, we're all kind of screwed because even if you go to the the, the social discourse at at a place like Princeton is somewhat so-called elite education system. uh, Students share stuff on Instagram and Facebook that are often just simple statistics or or it's obviously they share it to be progressive. They share it to advocate for Black Lives Matter they do it for good causes. But the fundamental mechanism through which they derive a lot of their knowledge, is so simplistic that you would think that they actually learned anything. They didn't learn anything from their classes. So It seems that for us to to really expect people to to go deeper into nuances and, and be responsible of the content sharing, this seems to be absurd. And for every one good quality content Axios puts out, there will be hundreds and hundreds of Horrible content that is being put out by by other media groups. So it's it's hard to com- combat that, right? So there's
1: no doubt there. are <laughs> to combat that. I'm not I'm not. I'm not,
0: I, so, not so I,
1: there I, are things like listen. All you can do is take control of your own life. Let's let's spend a second on Ivy League education. Like I love your idealism. I love the idealism of kids coming out of college. I think that's a great thing. I'm with you harness that to some real understanding, like get out of your soft fucking bubble where you just want things that are so reinforcing. Yes. (laughs) And just learn that the world is a complex place. And by the way, you're spending a lot of money on your awesome Princeton (laughs) education, which I think is a phenomenal education, I am sure. But I'm telling you, as somebody who's now started two companies, run a couple, it's indistinguishable. I could care less if you went to Princeton or you went to, didn't go to college at all. That is actually not the type of intelligence that it takes to thrive. And I'm sure yes. the foundation or whatever will call me and uh, pound on me for that. <laughs> charge you what they charge, but the <laughs> it really is like the the secret to success. The secret it does is is truly being able to apply some level of critical thinking, of having like some self-awareness, of developing emotional intelligence, like embracing uh, the nuance, having a work ethic, not being an intellectual snob. If you can do those things, you're gonna be a lot more successful than if you got a 4.0 and I came out of uh, Princeton. I'm not just dogging on Princeton, I'm just saying this in general as somebody who's now hired or fired several probably now thousands of, uh, of people going to, to, to two different countries. And it's just my, an observation.
0: No, it's really funny because here at Policy punch we did an election night live stream on YouTube uh, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, we have 30, more than 30 of very brilliant research team members from Princeton. They are all Princeton kids. They, they write fantastic questions for, for, for interviews and stuff, uh, but not, nobody can, can know how to figure out the live stream on, on YouTube and I had to find a guy I met in the gym uh, who goes to George Washington University, who is, goes to a much less glamorous university with a much less glamorous degree, but he knows about all this much better and, and he like bailed us out basically. But anyways, I, I don't wanna go on a tangent, but going back to more fundamentally about mainstream media and the, the people who try to understand the world but somehow have failed to, to do so. Uh, what would you say would, would be some of the biggest issues of mainstream journalism like Washington Post? or New York Times, sorry, I'm picking on the left because I guess I, I'm somewhat uh, someone of the left, but it seems that people criticize them to be narrative-driven journalism. They pander to the base. They don't understand what is actually going on outside their bubbles.
1: Let's take the New York Times. <clears throat> so I happen to think that the New York Times is a phenomenal newspaper. I really do. And I don't even say that, uh, and I'm someone who would be uh, more, more critical of them often. I think that they are the probably the most creative um, big media company out there. I think they do a very nice job of creating a good user experience for the reader. I think that they do a really nice job with coverage. I think in terms of people I would hire or that we try to hire, they are the smartest in identifying the reporters that I would hire if I were them or that we would like to hire that maybe they beat us out for. And, and, and I think that they've done some phenomenal journalism. And so I think like that part of it, of the ledger is great. And I think, and I would say that to my conservative friends, I'm sorry. I think that the New York times on the stories that they attack are, are are often they're, they're dead on. I think they do a really nice job of reporting. Now where they're weak is where they've always been weak. It's that they don't have anybody who understands Christianity or anybody who owns a gun or like people who live in rural areas or people who like really worry about how fast uh, uh, this country is changing in a way that they find uh, uncomfortable. So it limits the scope of the things that they cover. And when they do cover them, it tends to be like this is some exotic species while they live 100 miles from you. <laughs> uh, where I would critique them uh, in, in uh, is This idea of just like, especially what happened on their opinion pages of people like being so hurt and offended and uncomfortable about op-eds that they run or people uh, that work there, that they're getting purged and that people are fleeing these publications because uh, their colleagues don't find them to be sufficiently woke. That scares me. Like, I like open debate. I like being challenged and I would hope that they would want to have open debate and challenge. So yeah, I would separate that. It's not really the newsroom, but though a lot of that mentality persists and exists in their newsroom. But all in all, like uh, the New York Times, I think is in a class of its own in some ways as a as a media institution. Uh, I think broadly, like, I, I, again, like one of the things that we have at Axios, you're not allowed to state your opinion in public forums, you're not allowed to vote. This is whether you're a technologist, salesperson, or you're allowed to vote, but I mean, you're not allowed to uh, hold a fundraiser or advocate for a politician. Uh, we ask you to be super duper restrained in your, co- in your conduct in public, largely because we just wanna get to the persuadables and we want the mission to be about clinical uh, journalism. And I wish other institutions did that. I just think there's some that have allowed their reporters to go rogue, especially on Twitter, but also on cable in a way that I think really undermines their coverage. And I think the media in general, and I'll stop with the critique, like I was not impressed at all with the media's coverage of Joe Biden's campaign. I thought it was soft, cozy, uh, and uh, very insufficient. And I hope (laughs) the coverage of the presidency is not the same. Uh, and, and, and again, it's probably a reaction to, to, to Trump as president, but I, I'm a big believer uh, that presidencies require like very clinical but aggressive scrutiny like you're, you're, you're making big decisions with lots of people in complex environments and uh, there's no room for cheerleading or uh, or softness.
0: who caused the media slant? I guess this question has been asked by many scholars and policymakers. Is it the consumer or is it the politician or is it the supplier? Uh, Eric Weinstein, who is a podcast host, he said, supply creates its own demand, optics creates uh, its own substance. So it seems that we live in an age where you just need to take a video and put it on social media and people will come up with their own interpretations. Uh, or, Or New York Times could put out a narrative and people will jump on this narrative and create meta-narratives and other narratives, counter-narratives. So much stuff is going on these days that, that it just seems that we're just devolving uh, altogether into something rather than getting somewhere.
1: Again, these are all excellent questions are all very <laughs> complex, like who started the fire? Like the fire was started a long time ago. I think naturally just from people who for very innocent reasons choose the profession of journalism right? It is not like people who tend to choose journalism are not necessarily uh, rigorous capitalists, right? They're 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 people who are thinking about like, oh, like I want to be part of the social good. I want to be a writer. Uh, they, so it just tends to attract a left of center type, not all, but most. And so I'd say even when media was at its best, probably early in my career, it was still 90% plus. Uh, Democrat would be my guess it's just because of where people come from. So then those institutions take on a worldview based on the type of people they have. They tend to be located in New York and Washington, which two big cities that have a, a worldview of their own. Uh, and then they start to play to an audience that was very passive until the internet. You, you didn't really get a lot of feedback other than uh, your subscription renewal rates and letters to the editor, and now there's this constant feedback loop of you know it moves the needle. And so I think that then becomes the sort of cycle that becomes self, uh, self-fulfilling and it probably made it even more liberal. And, and, and this is spinning on one side while on the other, you have an entire infrastructure that's been built up over 30 or 40 years as a repudiation of mainstream media, uh, with mainstream media being the villain and the savior being this new infrastructure that at different times, at different places had a lot of success. Once, fate, once Fox comes along, Fox has a tremendous amount of success and really starts to shape the party uh, in a way that is probably more profound than the party itself. And then along comes social media, and then along comes Trump, who is a master of social media and TV, and basically took conservative media and the Republican Party and made it Trump. And it's going to be Trump for a long time. And 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 like that is where. Uh, uh, That is where he is way smarter than people understand. He just has a, a feel for Republicans, a feel for the media consumer that the party, the establishment, mainstream media doesn't have. And it's why I find her to be the most predictable person I've ever seen in politics. I don't even pay that much attention to the post-election stuff because I remember sitting down with Swan and we charted out week by week, this is exactly how this will unfold. And it's unfolded exactly how you think it would. And I know how it ends. Like, I, I don't think there's any mystery here. There never was any mystery. Uh, He was never, ever going to say that this was a fair election. He was going to get Rudy involved. You knew that the party uh, was going to fall in line. You knew that the the elected officials would fall silent. He'd say he's never going to leave. Everyone's going to be in hysteria. He's going to leave. He's not going to be frog marched from the White House. He's then going to set up a parallel infrastructure, not nearly as organized as people think, because it's way more work than he wants to actually go through. But he'll be able to pull the levers of media, pull the levers of the Republican Party. He'll say that he's going to run again in 2024. He probably will run again in 2024. He will be the Republican Party. He is the party. He mastered those mediums. And so, that's just a lot to pull apart, right? You could do a podcast on each and every one of those little itty bitty uh, pieces. But I think that like, that helps explain it. And that's why like you're uh, you're becoming a
0: pessimist in your young age, because you think about that and you're like, shit, that's a lot to solve. And it is a <laughs> lot. <to solve. laughs> I, I know you have to go soon, but I guess one quick prediction. So uh, my friends and I are saying what would likely happen exactly as we say, Trump will set up his parallel infrastructure and basically spend the next two, three years campaigning and destroy the Democrats in the midterms, and then in twenty twenty four, either he or some other Republican populist will come, Nikki Haley, Tom Cotton, who, Josh Haley, whoever, and and then you will you will likely have the Republicans getting back the White House in twenty twenty four. Do they, what would your prediction be? I guess do do you? I think you're definitely right
1: on that he's going to loom. Larger than people realize. Over the party, the idea that he would ever step off the stage is absurd. Like, like again, like there's no one around him that wouldn't say that he's like totally narcissistic, right? He loves attention. He loves being in the fight, and he doesn't mind if you hate him, which is an uh, uh, which is a uh, it's a rare trait, and in some ways, in politics, in this moment, a rare gift. He doesn't give a shit, and uh, he doesn't mind being uh, the vessel of hatred, and he understands that he. Ended up with a vote total that no one thought possible, and that in some ways, in many ways, he could argue that he's broadened the coalition of the Republican victory for him in a way that nobody else could. And so, uh, so if if not him, it'll be someone like him. I think it will be him. I think he will run again. I don't know that. Does that mean that they lose seats in the midterm like history says they probably do? But I don't know how much history is a great guide right now given the insane amount of volatility. (laughs) But, but that could be true and he'll take credit for that. He'll run a four year grievance campaign. The election was stolen, Biden's a dope. Uh, he, all the things you know he's gonna say. He, you know, he'll, he'll go from the coronavirus being his problem to the, this is all Joe Biden's problem. And he'll try to benefit from failure of the Democratic Party or Joe Biden, and then he would try to parlay that into a 2024 run. He might not actually run, but he would be insane not to say he's going to run because then he can set up set up the apparatus to be able to give money. But also, I think it would make it harder for the federal government, in particular, to go after him because he can say, "Oh, great, you're using the apparatus of the federal government to come after the leading contender for the 2024 Republican nomination." <laughs> it's criminal, it's criminal. Uh, that's what they'll do, and so. Uh, The question is, is it him in 2024? I I just, I don't know, but it's hard to see him ever leaving uh, the stage. And I don't know how Republicans, even if they want to quit him, can quit him. They can't. They can't quit him.
0: So uh, we've talked uh, around 45 minutes already about narratives, about what is going on in the media. What sources of information do you consume every morning when you get up, every day when you go to work? Uh, how, How do you make sure that you are educated on matters and see both sides of the things, but don't fall into this this trap uh, of partisanship or, or become yeah, a partisan yeah, hack.
1: Stipulating that I run a media company and I'm a reporter at heart. So I probably, I read more stuff than probably you should read or consume more stuff than you should consume. But in general, uh, every morning I, I, I look at the, I read through the times. Uh, usually looking for very specific reporters, read through the Wall Street Journal, always le- read their lead editorial just to see sort of what the establishment Republican uh, part of the party's thinking. I read tons of newsletters, uh, many of ours, but uh, just from people who I think have subject domain expertise and things that I care about. So like, like, I think Dylan Byers, who does a newsletter for CNN that looks at sort of what the kind of like the Netflixes and Apple's are thinking about things. I, I think he's pretty wired, so I, I read stuff. Uh, like him. I, uh, I listen to, I don't watch much of any cable TV. I do try to listen to Ben Shapiro a couple of times a week, because I think he's probably a, uh, one of the more clever, sort of more intellectual versions of some strand of Trumpism, and I think it gives you a good indication of where things are going. Uh, I, I listen to Joe Rogan. Uh, partly because I I, I think he is actually often a fantastic interviewer and I'm a runner. So if I'm doing long runs, I can get through a a big chunk of his two, three hour uh, episodes. But also I do think there's a strand of Bernieism and a strand of Trumpism that runs through him and and the type of people that are on his show uh, that I find useful for sort of understanding uh, that aspect. And then I try to, uh, partly because I spend time in both places, but just to get an understanding of like what's hot in Smaller areas, uh, the Bangor Daily News in in Bangor, Maine, and then uh, like the Journal Sentinel uh, back in my home state of Wisconsin, where I try to at least just see what 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 people are thinking about, and then a lot that's just pushed, uh, like everyone a lot that's just pushed to me via email or one of our my colleagues saying you should take a look uh, at this. Uh, But my point, I think, what you could take away from there is like if you align your information consumption diet right there's so much good information out there there's a lot of fantastic newsletters like i think mike's am for us is the smartest thing you could possibly uh read i think sarah fisher who works for us is the smartest person at understanding the media uh, industrial complex as it is uh, and the business behind it i think dan primack uh, who works for us on on business deals tech is just off the charts brilliant and and that's another thing that i do is like if there's something that interests me because I'm in the media, I'll just call people too and just pick their, their brains. Cause I, I, you try to find, like I try I, again, I'm, there's no doubt I'm susceptible to groupthink. Like I live in some of the same bubbles. So I try really hard to resist that. And like, I think part of, I've always had maybe a little chip on my own shoulder. So I'm always kind of a, a counter thinker on, on, on some things. And I think that probably helps me to stay somewhat grounded, but it's, it, it, you know, like the, the group thinking times can be intoxicated.
0: Uh, last question. Uh, since the name of our show is Policy Punchline, what would your punchline be for this interview? I already asked you whether you're a pessimist or optimist, so we'll skip that one. What would your punchline be? Punchline? <laughs> it can be about anything. Whether, whether You've got it's
1: a lot right. of shit to fix. <laughs> and, and I'm the and you're the pessimist. You're well, good. I, you should call me when you graduate.
0: Yes, yes, I, I, absolutely. I mean, this it's just been such a wonderful honor to, to interview you, Mr. Man. I'm also based in D.C. by the way, so it's a uh, 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 I'm just living here temporarily right now for for online school. And,
1: and, and oh, good. Well, in all seriousness, uh, email me. I'd love to chat when you graduate. Like you, you definitely you think very uh, <laughs> critically in a in a good way, and like that's what you're always hungry for. Is you're trying to find people who want to be in the game, like want to think critically, are fearless, like finding fearlessness. It's like the thing I love about like Jonathan Swan who works for us, or Maggie Haberman, who used to work for us, who's at the New York Times. She's like fearless, and get, I mean, we're all neurotics. So we probably give a little bit of shit what people think of us, but they just don't. Like they're just trying to get news. I love
0: that. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, thanks thanks so much. May I also talk to you for, for a brief minute after I, I uh, in this interview? Uh, yes. Well, thanks so much for, for listening today. This is uh, this concludes our interview with Mr. Vande uh, Please follow axios.com. Go subscribe to the newsletters and follow us on Uh, Listen to us on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube. Thanks so much for listening today.